Hello, everybody, and welcome to Allendale Market Talk. This is Mike Lung. Today, I'm being joined by Dr. Scott H. Irwin, who holds the Lawrence J. Norton Chair of Agricultural Marketing in the Department of Agricultural and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Scott, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So today, we're going to go over a few things. We're going to go over, one, the large conversation that's going on on Twitter about yields, acres, what everyone is expecting and how we're going about getting all of these estimates going on. But also, I saw there was a Twitter thread today from you about the article to rein in renewable fuel refinery exemption. Mm -hmm. So first, let's mm -hmm. let's start off with that uh, initial conversation that everyone's having about. What are your thoughts right now about how these conversations are going about acres and yields and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, where I have had been until very recently on corn was that we were going to lose someplace between 10 to 15 million acres of corn ultimately to prevent plant switching to soybeans and uh, failed acres. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after Considering some, you know, data or just observations by a few people, and then I did a, a Central Illinois tour myself, um, and just listening to what farmers are saying on Twitter, I think I was probably uh, a bit too high on how many acres we're going to lose. I think something absolutely fascinating happened, uh, which is uh, the amount of corn that was planted. Um, in June, uh, mm -hmm. which means out in the Western Corn Belt, it was planted after the prevent plant date. And then as you moved from west to east, uh, right up to and then past the prevent plant date. And so the discussion of the economics of doing that and why planted, basically a really interesting question I think that we're going to be pondering is, you know, what was the thinking of farmers to be running the corn planters as hard as they did um, in June, which normally we would think of as a pretty crazy thing to do. Um, if you look at planting response date studies that the universities do, they actually here in Illinois rarely even consider dates in June. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some data from other states, but that just gives you some some perspective. I mean, it's also important to keep perspective. I know there are some that I have uh, seen reference, you know, that are thinking we're only going to lose four or five million acres of corn in total to all these things. And I am, not, I just don't think that that's realistic from, from what we've been talking, you know, from what I'm picking up. I mean, um, you know, I'm in the camp now that the acreage loss will be someplace between seven and 10 million acres in total. And mm -hmm. I still think there's the possibility that there's more prevent plant hidden out there than we than we know. Right. For this report so on Friday. My summary. Yeah. Go so ahead. this report on Friday, do you think looking for that seven to ten uh million in prevents reasonable expect considering that usually the USD only recognizes about seventy six percent of total declining acres on this report? Or do you think that looking towards that seventy five seventy six percent you're probably going to be more so looking for a five to six million acre loss on this report. I think that you're looking at like someplace 
probably around that six, seven million acre loss for this report, which would mm-hmm. put you, you know, in that 85. I, I would, I expect the USDA to come in at 85, 86 million. I think the pre-report um, surveys that are coming out are in that range. That makes sense to me because, you know, even though the survey period was from May 30th to, as I understand it, the vast majority of the surveys were in by June 10th. So you had that Mm -hmm. 10-day period, um, you know, it overlapped when a lot of these decisions were being made, but not all of them. And so there's, in particular on soybeans, a huge chunk of the soybean acres will have to be intended after the survey period. So for sure, there's more uncertainty than usual about the accuracy of the number that the USDA publishes Mm -hmm. on Friday. Definitely. Yeah, and talking about the uncertainty, really delving into the next point about yields is you're getting this large variety of yield discussion right now. And obviously, there's a lot of season left, so it's going to be very hard to pinpoint what our yields are going to be looking like right now. But do you think it's reasonable, responsible for a lot of these uh, economists to be talking uh, a 20% cut right now? Because, I mean, we've really only tackled one of the variables when it comes to final yields we gotten through planning but we still obviously have pollination and kernel fill to get through so what are your thoughts in regard to that well i mean i don't think it's irresponsible to Mm -hmm. look at different um yield projections based on different assumptions we do that all the time right and it's really important to have a sense of what the distribution of outcomes could look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so where I come out right now is, you know, I think any yield projection, U.S. average in corn in the mid 160s is about right. I, mean, I think the USDA's uh, June WASDE 166 is a very reasonable starting point now, right, which is right. a, a 10 bushel uh, cut. But I do believe, from what I have actually personally seen in the fields, and then just thinking through what a big chunk of the corn crop got planted after Memorial Day, that we have to recognize that the yield risks are um, decidedly weighted to the downside compared to the upside from 166. I mean, I think under best conditions, if things kind of go swimmingly between now and the end of summer, which would mean we'd need it to warm up for a couple weeks, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, maybe two, three weeks and get nice rains during that period. And then it's really got to have a cool August and continue to get good rains. Um, and then we've got to have a nice, warm, moderate, extended fall to get this crop matured and dried down. I mean, and if that would happen, you know, we, we could conceivably get back up to 170, 171, 172. The, mm-hmm. It's going to take drawing that kind of insight straight on the weather, I think, to get us back up to that kind of yield expectation. And right. boy, a lot could go wrong compared to that scenario uh, moving forward. I mean, it's easy to forget that as of Memorial Day this year, we still had 40% of intended acres left to plant. Now, mm-hmm. we don't know exactly out of that 40% what didn't get planted, and there certainly was a chunk, but man, there's at least 30 million acres of corn 
that got planted after Memorial Day. And our planting date studies from universities are our best guide in this kind of situation. And, uh, you know, they show there's a wide range of outcomes that can occur with that super late uh, planting date for corn. But, you know, on that chunk, at least, you'd have to be thinking about realistically someplace between a 15 and 25% cut in yields. And boy, that puts a big dent in your U.S. average yield forecast. Yeah, so most definitely. I think you got to keep that in mind. So that's why I say, you know, the downside risks are really weighted uh, more heavily in my mind than the upside potential at, at this point. So, you know, um, worst case scenarios, you know, you could be down in the 130s, 140s. And, you know, it wouldn't take, you know, uh, much, uh, you know, further weather stress and a premature end to the growing season to put us down in the 150s now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so that's, like you're... that's the way I'm thinking about it right now. Yeah, and I do think that's a reasonable way to be looking at it. You like you were just paying to get it back up to a, a normal level based on what we've seen the past five years around that 170. You are going to need that picture perfect weather. And just based on what the weather's told us so far this year, having the extreme cold at the beginning of the year and just uh, moisture problems throughout the year so far, I, I do think that's a reasonable way of looking and, and at it. Around. And, and then what, one thing that I think you know, we just don't have data and we don't have experience on this. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, as far as, you know, I can remember, uh, you know, this is, at least in Illinois, the worst start in the last 60 years for the corn crop. Yeah. You know, as I look at the data and, you know, my instincts, you know, my just purely, you know, intuition is, is that we may have already done more to harm the yield potential of our corn crop than we realize. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's just impossible to really put a number on that. But that's my general uh, intuition about what might have been happening out in those fields. I mean, the best way I can describe it is, man, how could conditions in Illinois have been any better than last year? I mean, everything went perfect for the Illinois corn crop last year. I mean, it was pretty much perfect from start to finish. And it's just like this year is just the opposite. Mm-hmm. What could go wrong has go wrong has gone wrong uh, so far. Yeah, it's, it is quite a uh, inverse to last year. I mean, the last year was incredible looking at that, looking for really any way to boost these prices up by, especially with the the tariffs and everything that went on but it's been absolutely incredible this year i have not heard i hear very limited garden spots throughout the midwest about some good crop but the majority is not looking great and going from corn to beans do you think you can make an argument right now for yields for beans because looking at it from what i've seen it doesn't seem like it has as much correlation to planting date with final yields as corn does I think this is a very difficult situation we find ourselves in as analysts. Mm-hmm. That the, uh, the the scientific data that we have on doing experiments with soybeans from our agronomist friends shows 
that here in the heart of the Corn Belt, that the yield penalties for soybeans uh, are about the same as corn and at the same dates. Basically, that's the farm management issue that a lot of farmers are struggling with. The university research suggests you should be basically planting corn and soybeans at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, Emerson Massinger here at the University of Illinois thinks that maybe the yield penalties tend to um, bottom out in June for soybeans, whereas they just keep getting worse for corn. But there's just, you know, almost no data on that. I do know Gary Schnicki put out some really interesting data for Southern Illinois last week, looking at um, normally planted soybean yields versus double cropped for the last seven or eight years down in maybe 10 years in Southern Illinois and -hmm. showed that the average yield penalty for um, double cropped soybeans down there was about 23%. Hmm. And, um, you know, so that I, I really liked that comparison because that's real data out in the fields. Yeah. Southern Illinois, it's not, you know, prime central and Northern Illinois ground, but, you know, it, it, basically, you know, I took a big tour of central and south central Illinois uh, this last weekend. And the way I would describe what I saw, besides being shocking how bad the soybean crop looked, um, the best way I can summarize it, I was looking at a really bad double crop soybean um, crop, you know, if I had been in southwestern Illinois. But unfortunately, I was looking at that in central and south central Illinois, uh, not on double crop ground. Right. Yeah, I was I myself. I was flying over. Go ahead. (laughs) What I was going to say is that. So, you know, the agronomic planting date trials clearly suggest that and the double crop data that 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 we have, like Gary Shifty presented last week you know, shows that the super late planted, you know, soybeans from Memorial Day on, you know, someplace along, you know, by June 5th, June 10th, you should be subtracting at least 25% from the uh, yield, your yield expectations on that ground. Mm-hmm. But myself, like everybody else, struggles in modeling that because if you just plot trend-adjusted soybean yields versus some measure of late planting, it's very hard to find that in the data. And so I think that this is going to be a real struggle until we get, you know, USDA survey estimates to get a really good handle on what the the, the true yielding, you know, right now, most models are probably spitting out pretty high soybean yields still, because mm-hmm. I don't think that they historical data provides us a very good base necessarily for um, trying to understand what what soybean yield expectations should be planted this, you know, kind of extraordinarily unprecedented black swan kind of late planting in terrible conditions. Mm -hmm. We just don't have that in the data. So it's hard to estimate it. Right. It's definitely an outlier year. I mean, like I was uh, trying to say earlier, I was flying over I went from O'Hare down to Evansville, Indiana, barely got up in the air because it's short flight, but it was surprising to see how much was shining back for me from the ground just because of all the standing yeah. water. It's absolutely ridiculous. It yeah, was... I mean, that's my impression. 
I drove from Champaign to Effingham to St. Louis and then back up uh, to Springfield, Illinois, and then back to Champaign. And like I said, I was just, I was literally, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but I was shocked at how terrible the soybean crop looked. It was much worse than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I realized I was probably seeing it in the worst possible light in terms of it was cloudy. And like you, there was there's just water standing everywhere on beams that are an inch or two high. Right. That is not a good that is not a good start for the soybean crop. No, beans don't like wet feet. That's for sure. <laughs> and, and they're not just they're not having wet feet. They're you know, a good chunk of it is now drowned. Right. Yeah. Up to its neck and it's you definitely can't compare this to any other year. It's it's well loosely, and but so I think that that's why, and I think that's why we're really going to struggle to assess the yield potential of this uh, 2019 soybean crop. It's really going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. But going on to the uh, the next area that I wanted to touch base on, and you seemed pretty vocal about on Twitter today was this renewable fuel refinery mm-hmm. exemptions. Uh, could you give us a little uh-huh. background on that th- and uh, problems and your your solution that you were stating today? Sure. Well, it, it's a bit of a complicated topic, but mm-hmm. from the start, small refineries have had a pathway to apply for an exemption from obligations under the RFS. In other words, purchase rents and turn them in for compliance Mm -hmm. based on the argument that the administrative and overhead costs um, and managing a RIN book might just be um, an economic burden for a a smaller refinery. So that's been there from the beginning. The difference is once the Trump administration came in um, and under Director Pruitt, well, under the Obama administration, very few of those waivers were handed out. Mm-hmm. And then a complete turnaround under the uh, Pruitt and Wheeler administrations where, uh, under President Trump, where now virtually almost everyone got them. So a complete turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, that in and of itself does not have to be problematic. The real heart of the matter is once those waivers are granted for obligation under the RFS mandates, what happens next is the key. Mm-hmm. What happens to those obligated volumes? One's intuition would be, oh, well, if small refineries are exempted, then that obligation would just get passed on to everybody else. But now this is a loophole that the refiners have driven a Mack Mack truck through and they think that it is, you know, ironclad that we're granting all these SREs, but we're not changing the formulas to account for the fact that we're lowering the base of obligations and it effectively cuts the RFS mandates substantially, depending on the year and how many are granted, someplace between 10 and 15%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a large material 
impact on the final enforced RFS mandates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, from a high level view, what has happened without a doubt is that the uh, refiners and their allies have used SREs awarded retroactively without reallocating those obligations to the large refineries as a way, strong language, but effectively it is true, to gut the RFS standards. Mm-hmm. And the the refining community argues that this is all 100% legal. Move along, nothing to see here. This is exactly the way the Clean Air Act is supposed to work, which is which the RFS is a part of. Mm-hmm. And my point is that I believe that that won't legally ultimately stand up in court because this SRE policy considered as a whole is in effect granting to the EPA general waiver authority to cut the mandates that Congress never gave to the EPA and it directly contradicts the stated congressional purpose as confirmed by Judge Kavanaugh in his U.S. Appeals Court ruling from July of 2017 that the core congressional purpose in creating the RFS was that it is to be a technology-forcing and market-pressure-driven policy. Mm -hmm. And the SREs remove all the pressuring and all the forcing. And so something's got to give here. A judge is going to have to weigh that congressional intent versus whatever legal arguments the refiners make, and is going to have to decide which one uh, predominates. To me, mm-hmm. no pun intended, but that the congressional intent should trump whatever <laughs> the refiners and EPA have been have been saying. So that's the, the the nub of my argument. And I also have written a series of FarmDoc Daily articles that I believe show pretty clearly that the U.S. biofuels industry has experienced, you know, real and very costly demand destruction from the SREs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only argument I'm having with the biofuels industry is, you know, I argue that the hit or demand destruction from the SREs is not equally distributed across biofuels. I don't believe that ethanol has taken much, if any, of a hit, and almost all of it has fallen on biodiesel. So, but I don't disagree on this larger question of uh, is is this SRE-driven policy uh, legal? No, I don't believe it is. And B, is it having large negative impacts on the U.S. biofuels industry? And I think that that evidence is is really clear. And so that's kind of a quickest summary I can provide <laughs> of where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed seeing the conversations. I mean, your Twitter threads are very informative. I read them all the time. So I'm glad to... Well, good. I hope I haven't caused you to go blind. But I did say <laughs> for the first time today... I put out what I've been thinking about for quite a while as a solution to this whole SRE mess. 
Today mm-hmm. was the first time I put it out publicly. Uh, it's not very widely known, but when RFS2 started, when the EPA started implementing it in 2010, they used a real simple rule. Everybody, all small refiners were just given a blanket exemption. Mm-hmm. And that was taken into account when they com- when they computed the percentage formulas. Nobody complained about it at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's not an unreasonable policy. So my argument is, is that's really what I think we should go back to. Just forget all this business about, you know, trying to determine whether refinery A versus refinery, small refinery B uh, is experiencing an economic hardship due to the RIN program or not. Just exempt them all mm-hmm. and then transfer that obligation to the large refineries. Bing, okay. bada, bing, done. Problem solved. Everybody is happy. Small refiners, corn soybean farmers, ethanol, biodiesel. It would take EPA completely out of the whole small refinery business. The only people mm-hmm. that would be upset would be the large refiners. And my argument is they can pass those costs on anyway. So move along and hurry up and make the change would be my suggestion. Wouldn't that be nice if we could get that, <laughs> get the government to move quickly? Uh, yeah, and so <laughs> there is a common sense, simple solution to this that um, isn't just pie in the sky. We have done it before. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, reading it makes a lot of sense. And it, it's amazing that we can go from, a plan that works originally to start skewing everything and just digging ourselves in the hole here. Um, well, this, this is not by accident. This was well designed, clever ploy by the refining industry to effectively gut the RFS. They hate it. Mm-hmm. They want to kill it. They want to get rid of it. They'll tell anybody that will listen that that is their objective. And they believe that they have found through this, kind of SRE loophole and the way it's being implemented without reallocation, you know, the, the answer to all of their desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us today and laying all these well factually based points. Um, I know that you have a webinar coming up this Friday. Do you want to tell people how they can get in t- uh, contact with you and how, where to see that at? Sure. Um, just uh, you can go to our FarmDoc or FarmDoc Daily website, and there's a place that you can click on uh, events and register for uh, a webinar that Todd Hubs and I are going to be uh, putting on at from two to three uh, this Friday after the USDA reports. And if our heads will stop spinning around fast enough, we'll try to say something sensible about what it means. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for joining me if you guys have any questions for us you can reach out here at allendale-inc.com by phone 1-800-262-7538 this is mike lung being joined by scott Irwin this week for allendale market talk you guys have a great one